This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. On behalf of the Moraine Valley Library and the Moraine Valley Bookstore, I'm happy to welcome all of you to our opening event uh, for our One Book, One College program on uh, Autobiography of Malcolm X. This book was selected because of its many relevant themes that tie into our curriculum here at the college and how it ties into our daily lives. The themes um, of this program include race in America, the civil rights movement, the time period of the 1960s itself, the Islamic faith, and the many expressions of that faith in America, and many other topics. Sometimes it feels like we've come so far since Malcolm X's time, uh, especially as we watch uh, Barack Obama make a run for president. Oh, Barack. Um, sometimes it feels like nothing has changed at all, at all as we see uh, so many civil rights protesters on their way to Louisiana today. So it is our hope that discussions such as those that we're having today are going to help us take one more step forward in our nation's struggle to live up to its promises for all of our citizens. I would like to thank all of you for coming. And uh, before we begin, I'd like to uh, take a second to thank uh, Kasia Shah and Lynn Dulles in the bookstore, and to thank uh, Sylvia Jenkins and uh, Maria Diversa here in the library for their support. I'd also like to thank our One Book Planning Committee, and I'd like to especially thank David Johnson from South Suburban College, who's here in the front, and uh, Willa Johnson from Moraine for all their help and guidance as we plan these events. Uh, now it's my pleasure to introduce today's speaker. Uh, Dr. Abdul Akalamat is a professor um, in the Graduate School of Library and Information Science and of African Studies, African American Studies at the University of Illinois. He holds a PhD from the University of Chicago. He is editor and creator of the Malcolm X research site, BrotherMalcolm.net. Uh, he is a distinguished author who has published numerous articles and books, and we look forward to him uh, kicking off our events and our discussion of all of our themes. So it is my distinct pleasure to welcome Dr. Abdul Kalamay. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I am a Chicagoan, uh, but this is the first time I've been out here to Lorraine uh, Valley, so it's a pleasure. Uh, and yet, at the same time, uh, can't have anything happen on a day like today and not mention Gina, Louisiana. Uh, I've mentioned this more than once during this talk, but for you who did not experience the 1960s, and I think there are a few of us who did, uh, it's important to understand that events like this are really not simply about Louisiana, some small town in Louisiana, but they're really about the entire United States, if not the world. And so sometimes small little relatively insignificant places become the most significant places at that moment. And so whether it was Greensboro, North Carolina, where the sit-ins began, uh, or any number of other places throughout this country and the world, Gina is a place where the entire world is looking at the moral, the political, uh, the, the conscience and the soul of America. And I think that uh, it's important for us to mention at the beginning because so much of what I'll have to say about uh, Malcolm X is directly relevant uh, to our understanding of this moment. What I'm going to do today, and I'm going to be using this slide of uh, PowerPoint mechanism to help uh, get through this talk, but also to be as a guide for you to 
able to look at some pictures and see some concepts that uh, hopefully will be uh, useful not only today but throughout for a year. Let me also say that the idea of having a book as a focus for the entire year is a fantastic idea. As we know, cities throughout the country have adopted this process. But when you take a book like Malcolm X's autobiography, uh, you're really getting serious about this one book business uh, because uh, this is a book that uh, uh, people wanted to burn. It's a book simultaneously that people wanted to uh, raise to canonical status. In other words, a book that would be referred to by everyone uh, in the world as a piece of world literature. So here you've got this book that is had from both ends of the spectrum, but also you've got a book that is deeply clutched and held to the breast of most African-American youth as they come through uh, the educational process because Malcolm's life, uh, and I'll refer to this again, but Malcolm's life is so much a part of the life cycle of being an African-American, and it may well be part of the life cycle of what it means to be an American. That's also one of my sub-themes in this talk, is to what extent is Malcolm a doorway, a gateway, to the African-American experience? And to what extent is Malcolm a gateway or a doorway to the American experience? It's a very interesting tension between being African-American, emphasis on African, and being African-American, emphasis on America. There is this struggle. The boys wrote about this warring selves, this tension uh, between wanting to affirm yourself, and yet at the same time that you're affirming yourself as an African-American, you know that America is racist to the bone, uh, as the phrase would have in other words, there's almost no aspect of this country, whether it's the church, the state, the community, informal behavior, hanging out at the bar, watching a football game, that the issue of black and white, the issue of racism, doesn't come to the fore. This is something black people feel, it's often something that white people are embarrassed by, but everybody experiences it almost every day, every week, if you're in this country and are conscious of what's happening. So we want to talk about Malcolm today, but the first thing I want to do is to place Malcolm in a context. In other words, a lot of times people deify someone or uh, think very highly of them, and therefore it's almost like we abstract them out of their context and don't understand their context. So I want to establish a context for you that answers some of the silences in the curriculum. It speaks to why we have black studies programs in the United States. So we'll talk about that a little bit. Then I'm going to also focus in on Malcolm's life, and I think perhaps most people are familiar with aspects of his life, but I want to uh, give you some detail on that. And then I want to draw out of Malcolm's life what I think are the lessons for the 21st century. And then I will give you some homework. Now, the fundamental idea here is that the African-American community had intellectual and political traditions that are long-standing traditions and that represent the complexity of how African-Americans have reflected on their experience. First, there is the question of the church and religion or black liberation theology. 
In other words, the main underlying theme of most of these aspects are really freedom, liberty, democracy, justice. And therefore, in the religious realm, like liberation theology has always been, how do you interpret the Bible or how do you interpret the Quran as guidelines understand the moral and political networks through which you have to navigate in order to lead your life or that you have to transform in order to save the society that you happen to be living in. And so religion has been a very important uh, reference point in the radical black tradition. Second, of course, is Pan-Africanism. And here what we're talking about is the unity that black people feel by virtue of a common experience with descendants of Africa everywhere in the world. Now let me just, first of all, clarify that. First thing you have to realize is everybody here is a descendant from Africa. That's what they tell us about the historical origin and development of our species. As homo sapiens sapiens come out of Africa. So if somebody were to ask you, whoever you are here, ultimately where did your people come from? They came from Africa. That's the first point. I know that's a shocking revelation to have to accept. But that's what the uh, archaeologists and the geneticists tell us. But we also know there was a second, uh, or there were two migrations out of Africa. So I just want to suggest for your own study that if there is something called race, and of course within Homo sapiens sapiens, that idea has been debunked on every scientific front. But if there is this question of race, then it has to be a contradiction between the Neanderthals. That is, the Homo sapien Neanderthalus that came out first and was in Europe, and met the Homo sapiens that came out in the second wave. And so there's a debate over what happened. But if there is this debate, it has nothing to do with Homo sapiens sapien, it has something to do with Homo sapien Neanderthal and Homo sapien sapien. That's just a little footnote to think about. But this Pan-Africanism is a question of black people in the context of European colonialism and racism that we've experienced over the past several centuries. And third, the question of nationalism. That is the unity of experience and the need to unite the struggle for justice and democracy within this country. And fourth, you might have called this feminism, but I put womanism there which was really Alice Walker's response to the feminist movement of uh, being relatively, in her eyes, insensitive uh, to the reality of the black experience. But here what we're talking about is black women and their need to unite the struggle against triple oppression or racism, classism, and male supremacy. And lastly, the question of socialism or economic justice. You know, it's an interesting question for all of us to ask. If we had an experiment, if we had an experiment, and we set up an economy, we said, okay, we'll let this economy run for a certain period of time, how long would it be until we can make a judgment? A generation? A decade? Maybe a hundred years. Well, if you look at the 20th century, black people were in a certain kind of shape in the year 1900, 
And then suddenly, a hundred years later, in the year 2000, we're in some similar shape. So there has to be an evaluation of this structure called capitalism, and that's why there is a current in the African-American tradition which calls that into question. In other words, it's a typical response of poor people. You're poor, you think the society isn't working. Now, the society takes the other position. The society says that your poor is your fault. Well, of course, it was easy to do that when they were demonizing black people on welfare. But now, with the rising tide of black unemployment, I think you might get some black-white unity. Okay, so you got these five traditions, and I want to carry on a little more and give you an idea of who's a part of these traditions. For example, these two men here, as you can see the dates, represent a long period of time. Benjamin Mays, who was the president of Morehouse College, was the one of the teachers of Martin Luther King. My point is showing you this slide is a long history and a lot of names. Here's another danger that you as students should constantly be weary of. And that is that the intellectual work of the previous generation is often neglected. Therefore, you're forced to really reinvent the wheel and not stand on the tallest trees in the forest. And so when it comes to the black experience, there are giant intellectuals. In addition to Malcolm, of course, who I'm getting to. But my point is, is, is that only by finding these giant intellectual and moral leaders and studying their work can we take advantage of the previous generation. Not taking advantage of the previous generation is a serious mistake. That's why I love libraries, because what, what are they? They are access to the past. Pan-Africanism. Now here's what's an interesting thing, is that many of us in the United States wear blinders and are only interested in the United States. Well, one of the things that has helped African-Americans be global is the fact that there are people all over the world who have taken up Pan-Africanism. So here we have an example of Marcus Garvey from Jamaica and Kwame Nkrumah from Ghana who embrace these ideas. Now, of course, Pan-Africanism is nothing but the ideological response to the global slave trade which produced the African diaspora in the first place. Now, nationalism is a way of talking about unity within the United States. Now, if you look at these graphics here, in the lower left-hand corner, you'll see a map of the United States and the dark areas represent the concentration, the percentage in the counties of black population. And so you're looking at what we call the Black Belt South. In other words, where are black people concentrated? <coughs> this is why there is this expression in uh, black discourse of down home, because there is a concentration of black people in the South, and most African Americans, certainly in the Midwest, can point to the state and the county or the region of the state where their people come from. Not unlike many white people. That's an interesting point, because in Chicago, you automatically almost know that black people's history goes back to Mississippi. Just like if you were in Detroit, you'd say Alabama, Tennessee. Well, as it turns out, a whole lot of white people came up from Mississippi, too. 
I don't know if there are any descendants of Mississippi immigrants here, but my point is, is that it's partly an American experience, but here we're specifically talking about the African Americans. Then if you look at the uh, graphic on the right, uh, you recognize the city of Chicago. And the dark areas represent the concentration of African Americans. And so when we talk about nationalism, we're really talking about the way in which the geographic distribution and concentration of African Americans not only gives an opportunity for enhanced exploitation, which has been the dominant trend, but gives an opportunity for aggregation and concentration of resources to bring about change. As we all know, change is not something that enlightened people simply uh, provide for the society. In fact, we know that change often comes from people organizing themselves for power in such a way to impact the democratic process and therefore bring about change. And so what we're talking about here is the logic of black power. That is, the aggregation of people in common spaces in order to uh, address the society to solve problems. Now, the question of black women fits prominently in this story, although I have to uh, say, of course, that uh, the African American experience has been really no different from most people in the world. It's been male supremacist and oppressive uh, to women. And yet, when you look closely at that experience, you find that at every point at which there were struggle, to, to enhance democracy and bring justice to the society, women have been at the heart of it. Women have been at the heart of leadership. Go into most churches and you see exactly what I mean. It's the women that are doing the work. Here in this picture you see, in the top left, you see Sojourner Truth, who was a, a great conductor of the Underground Railroad, helping people escape from slavery. The top right, you see Ella Baker, who was the woman organizer in the background behind Martin Luther King. And then at the bottom you see the most important militant woman, Fannie Lou Hamer, who was a sharecropper in Mississippi and fought against uh, the oppression of uh, black people in Mississippi and in fact uh, was brought by Malcolm to Harlem to get a talk and he made many uh, comments about her uh, heroism. Or perhaps I should say heroism. And then socialism. We see uh, throughout the world this uh, attempt to develop something other than the capitalist system. And so you see Marx and Engels in the top left, uh, Lenin and Stalin, Che Guevara and Fidel Castro, Joan Lai and Mao Zedong, Kwame Nkrumah and W.E.B. Du Bois, Huey Newton and Bobby Seale. All of these people have experimented with how do we actually provide a society in which everybody has health care. We don't have that in this country. Everybody can go to school and college. We don't have that in this country. Everybody has the freedom to have a place to live. We don't have that in this country. I'm not sure they had it in any country. But the point I'm trying to make here is that in the black intellectual tradition, there's always been the embrace of that old blues song. The sun's going to shine in my front door someday. That means that someday I'll be without the problems that I have. That is a vision. It's a vision that every immigrant community has had when they come to the United States. 
It's a vision the United States has held out as an American dream, and it's a dream that certainly black people have never realized. And therefore, it becomes part of the tradition to struggle for that. Now, what I've laid out then is five aspects of the tradition. First, black liberation theology. Second, pan-Africanism. Third, nationalism. Fourth, womanism. Fifth, socialism. But these ideas have come together at critical moments in our history. There have been three major moments to understand the complexity of being black in America and the discourse about race, this illusion of the discourse. And that's three debates. First debate, the struggle against slavery. How are we going to get free? Or what we call the emancipation debate. Second, under the conditions of segregation, turn of the century into the 20s, 1920s, there was the self-determination debate. And then lastly, of course, in the 1960s, the black liberation debate. Now let's take a look at them. The emancipation debate, there were really three basic answers to what to do in America. Now you can imagine, here are African people snatched up by these people from Europe, brought to a country, and if you read Equiano, that is an African who was a slave, captured as a slave, etc. If you read the slave narratives, Africans didn't know well, these people might be cannibals. We don't know who these people are. They're snatching us up, taking us to some other country, and forcing us to work with no pay. So there's this debate. Three questions. What are you going to do? First, let's get the hell out of here. Seems like a rational response to slavery. Let us emigrate. Let's get out of here. Another response is, perhaps we can talk to them. Reason with them. Maybe that would make slavery a little bit better. We write petitions. We'll have conversation. Of course, if those two things don't work, we might have to fight. Now, as you can see, on the right, Frederick Douglass, he was definitely interested in struggle. Without struggle, there would be no progress. One of his famous quotes. But he was, in the end, a negotiator. You see, on the left, Martin Delaney actually fought in the Civil War. He was interested very much in Africa. And then in the center, you see that picture, famous picture, of Nat Turner, who led a slave revolt. Now, it's an interesting thing about this slave revolt is that this was the revolt of oppressed people. Therefore, black people hold Nat Turner as a hero, just like they hold Malcolm X as a hero. This was, like in 1830 to about 1870, you had meetings all across the country of black people trying to figure out what are we going to do in Cincinnati and Cleveland and Philadelphia and New York and Boston, trying to figure out how to get free from slavery. So that's something you don't necessarily learn in school. It's as if African Americans were not thinking. And yet, in fact, they were. That's the important point. After the turn of the century, from the 1890s on, you get another debate. This debate was based on the fact that, okay, we're no longer slaves, but most people are in the rural south in that black belt I showed you. And the question was, under segregation, what can we do? And so the theme was, how do we fight for greater freedom, how do we fight for greater economic development, and so on, and yet there was no real 
perception that America could be changed. But it was how do we as African Americans within this terrible condition, how do we change? And so though you get this debate, the immigrationists, let's get out of here debate, that's the position that was held by Marcus Garvey. You get the question of let's negotiate. Maybe we can just negotiate a better relationship here. Some kind of way. Booker T. Washington. And the protest tradition goes back to the person in the middle, W.B. Du Bois, the first PhD history of Harvard University. And then, of course, we come to the 1960s. Now black people are no longer sharecroppers in the South. They've been migration to the North, living in cities. And so we get the eruption of the black liberation debate where now the question is not accepting the conditions of the country and how is the community going to develop. Now those questions are joined and the goal is to transform the country. In other words, not only are we talking about changing the conditions of African Americans, but we're talking about changing the conditions and particularly the mentality of American society. Where racism is so ingrained, it seems rational and true. And yet, when you stand back and look at it, it's absolutely ridiculous. Now, look at this picture here. That's Malcolm and King. Now, in the media, generally, you saw them as real opponents at each other's throat. And yet, this looks like they're having a good time. All right, we know there are two aspects of that. On the one hand, they both knew they were in the struggle for freedom. On the other hand, they did have differences. And this isn't the only picture of that one-time meeting they had. There's another picture where they're a little bit more somber. But I wanted to show this picture because look at the other two pictures. On the top, you see the picture of Malcolm X after he was assassinated. On the bottom, you see the picture of the balcony where he is stretched out where he was assassinated. So what do we assume here after looking at this? Do we say that there are two roads and these men were totally different? Or do we say the multiplicity of roads that African Americans have created often are met with the same racist viciousness? So regardless of whether you're a King follower or a Malcolm follower, you've got to come to grips with what America brought to both of them. And every American has to decide what they're going to do. See, now, you could be white, and you could say, well, that ain't got nothing to do with me. That's black history. It's a long time ago. It has nothing to do with me. Or maybe it does. Gina, Louisiana. Today. Maybe tomorrow. This is a moment that enables us to show our moral character by how we respond to the historic manifestation of evil in our society. You know, you can choose a lot of things, but you can't choose what historical moment you're living in. I used to think I really wanted to be in the 1940s because I like bebop. So I wouldn't be standing there with Charlie Parker and Miles Davis and the Lonious Monk. And yet, if I had stuck on that idea, you know who I would have missed? I would have missed John Coltrane. You know. 
So I was glad to be part of the John Coltrane moment. I'm trying now to be part of the hip-hop moment, if you know what I mean. I don't want to be left behind. But what I'm trying to tell you is that this is your moment. This is your moment for moral decisions, for political decisions. This is your moment to grow up and to take control of your life, your family, your society, and to do it in such a way that we can change this country and get this behind us. That's what everybody wants. But you can't do it by ignoring it. You've got to face it. And that's what Malcolm helps us to do. This is a moment in which the Black Liberation Colors brought by Marcus Garvey into the canon of the African American tradition really can help us understand how we can all help save America. Now there are four stages of Malcolm's life. As you can see, I've used the names that he had, he had many names, but used names to sort of characterize each stage. You see the dates of his life connected to those stages, and the chapters are the books in the autobiography that deal with those stages of his life. Now, Malcolm Little was born in a small Midwestern town, lived in small Midwestern towns that had small black populations. His father was a minister, so that part of the radical black tradition. His mother was from Grenada, and therefore he grew up with a bigger sense than just the narrowness of being in the Midwest. He grew up with this sense of Pan-Africanism. His mother was from Grenada. Third, his father was active in the Garvey movement, and therefore he was involved in organizing black people to resist the kind of racism they were experiencing in Omaha and then in small towns in Michigan. His mother was a very strong woman. She was active in the UNIA as well. Uh, people have found articles in the Negro World, which is Garvey's newspaper, that she wrote as secretary of the various chapters that she, they, they were in. And then in terms of the economic situation, his father was so committed. Now, his father was so committed to self-determination and independence that he actually built their home himself. So that notion of self-reliance, which is very much a part of that struggle for economic democracy. So that's Malcolm Little. But then when Malcolm moves from these small Midwestern towns to large northeastern cities with large black populations, etc., Malcolm then takes to the street. Now with Malcolm Little, obviously, he was the typical young brother aspiring to occupational success, to educational success, had it, was elected officer by his classmates, etc. And yet the system was constantly telling him, you're black, you're nigger, you should not have those aspirations. And so what he did was he said, okay, cool. I took that as a negation, and then he went out and himself proclaimed the negation of America by becoming a thug, a criminal, a hoodlum. Everything that he was supposed to do as Malcolm Little and reap rewards, and he didn't reap rewards, he did exactly the opposite. 
among other things, for example, is a taboo about white women. So he went out and got him a white woman who was married. All the taboos were broken by Detroit Red. And of course, that name comes from being in New York, because in Michigan, you wouldn't be called Detroit Red. There'd be too many Detroit Reds. Okay, from small towns, large towns. Midwest, Northeast. Small black community, large black community. Very different circumstances. But the life of criminal leads him to be incarcerated. After that, of course, we know in the prison, he had reached such death that the criminals nicknamed him Satan. Now, you know that's serious. You're in jail and they call him Satan. Everybody in there did something. You know, the could have been being in the wrong place at the wrong time, as we know. But the point is, is that he had reached a depth. And the bounce back, of course, was his rediscovery of what his father and his mother had taught, what his brothers and sisters were bringing him as a result of their having joined the nation of Islam, and him having experiences in the prison, finding out that status could come from your intellectual power from your speech capacity and that these were weapons that were stronger than the guns that had been used in his previous stage and so he then began to master the intellectual tools necessary to advocate change which really became characteristic of the rest of his life and so he joined the nation of Islam he became a Muslim and he became an advocate for freedom As Malcolm X, he traveled over the entire United States, building mosques and organizing in the Black Liberation Movement. This is very important for Malcolm X because what happened is this. There was a civil rights movement which really was about realizing the promises of the Constitution and the uh, amendments to the Constitution that came as a result of the only civil war in the United States. Now, Malcolm became not only the spiritual and political leader of the Black Liberation Movement, he became part of the leadership Parthenon that radicals and progressives in all communities in all communities respect so that at the end Malcolm X became dangerous not just because he was a leader of black people he became dangerous because he was the leader of all progressive forces in the United States for example if you go back and you study SDS the Students for a Democratic Society the largest student organization that existed at that time they began to respect Malcolm as a leader of the American movement so it's important to constantly see that he was bigger than simply being a ghetto political leader. Now as Malik Shabbat, the last 18 months of his life, he had left the nation of Islam because of internal contradictions and because of the role of the U.S. government. Now as a result of him leaving the nation of Islam, he then began to reevaluate and became really global. So that, for example, a large, largest percent that 
18 months, he spent outside of the United States. Martin Luther King was respected by the world and got the Nobel Prize. When Malcolm went to an OAU meeting, he was then taken out of the hotel and put in a boat with the rest of the liberation leaders from Southern Africa in order to protect him, but in respect for what he represented as part of the struggle in this country. And so he was as much of a global leader in the sense of Africa embracing him as King was in the sense of the Nobel Peace Prize. But we have to keep in mind, Nobel got his money by inventing dynamite. So it's a rather interesting thing that it's in his name that we get the Peace Prize. Curious. Okay, so you get these four stages of Malcolm's life. First, the believer that life is possible, Malcolm Lillard. But you want every young boy, every young girl to, to think, to aspire to progress in schools and in jobs. That was negated. He took to the street, became a criminal. Thug. A man of the, uh, of the shadows. But then he was able to save himself by joining a religion and an organization that gave him moral code and gave him a sense of being in the world and a sense of purpose that it was possible to transform others toward this peace, justice, and freedom and democracy uh, that everyone speaks so highly of. And last, of course, as a global revolutionary, now, interestingly enough, separating religion and politics moving outside of a sectarian, narrow environment, but now speaking to the world, now speaking in broad democratic terms, and it's these terms, it's these terms that in retrospect we have to go back and begin to evaluate now. See, a lot of people, well, take yourselves for example. Picture yourself in elementary school doing the worst thing you ever did. Okay? Are you at that moment? Nobody wants to be known by that moment. What you'd say is, I've grown up. I don't do that anymore. Or I do it more successfully. Or I do it when nobody knows it. Okay? So what you want to do is to take every life you examine and process and see it in a process. And so we want to go back and we're going to look at the mature mouth to try to understand something about what his message is. Now, I'm going to share with you something we've been working on called an ideological framework. The underlying concepts here are concepts you can apply to your own thinking. And certainly we can use this framework to understand Malcolm. Identity. That was Malcolm's main point, really. Like what he used to say is, if you took a kitten who was pregnant and put that kitten in an oven, would they have kittens or biscuits? Well, biscuits come out of the oven, but this is cats, so it's got to be kittens. So you take an African, put an African in America, what do you get? An African or a Negro? Well, as we know, Du Bois fought for that word Negro and capitalizing the word Negro in a particular historical circumstance, but everybody's named after a piece of land they come from. If I said French, everybody said, yeah, they're from France say Cuban, they're from Cuba. Or uh, Germans, they're from Germany. Where are Negroes from? 
There's no Negro language. They made that up. And that's why Malcolm brought the concept of Africa back into the center of the discussion of who African Americans are. So that's the first thing. And by that, he was, to use a phrase, thinking out of the box. That's a phrase that people often use, particularly with young people, because then they're really saying, how do you get to be creative? Don't just accept the narrow confines that are there for you, but be creative. Think outside the box. Malcolm got out the box. Okay, in terms of his analysis, his analysis had something to do with black people being, you know, oppressed. Put it another way, black people getting the raw deal all the time. Ultimately, this came down to his characterization of, of Western civilization. He sort of raised that idea that Gandhi at one point raised. Somebody asked Gandhi, what do you think of Western civilization? And his response was, it's a great idea, it ought to be tried. You get my, my drift here. First, you're talking about a man who comes from an older place. And second of all, it's not entirely clear that the kind of racist history the United States has would qualify it as a civilized country. I know that's hard to take, you know, when you say civilized. I mean, every country uses the word civilized to represent themselves. And yet, black people inside the United States and Malcolm's guidance helped us to see that to be civilized in this country is going to take a lot of work. I guess we could go to divorce courts, we could go to emergency rooms and hospitals, and you know, there are other places where we can see that civilized people have a way to go, you know, too. But certainly the black experience helps us to see that. Now, he was a global person, a worldwide person. So he was constantly trying to put us in the context of the world. And so he saw a world revolution as part of this. Now remember what was happening during Malcolm's life. Well, Africans were rising up against European colonialism. Can you imagine when Malcolm was around, there were white people in Africa saying this belongs to us? Well, if you were Native American today, you might be wondering about the United States. I don't know how many people here have ever been to a reservation. But they still have reservations from the indigenous people who were in this country. Just imagine that. It seems preposterous, really. And yet, there we are. Okay, program. He created two organizations, Muslim Mosque Incorporated, MMI, and the Organization of African American Unity. Now, this is important because in politics, you organize people to fight for change within whatever the political structure is of a country. On a religious front, you're fighting with regard to people's souls, to people's moral character, to a foundation of values. And so what Malcolm was trying to say is that black people have a common struggle and therefore, our religious differences should not prevent us from being in that common struggle together. 
the quote Malcolm is, I'm sure you've heard this quote. Black people are not oppressed because they're Methodist or Baptist or Catholic or Presbyterian. They're oppressed because people have historically oppressed black people for their own personal gain. Some actually get a gain, others do it, don't get a gain, but act like they're doing it for a gain. In other words, poor white people are often the most racist because they're under the illusion that black people are getting over and stopping them from getting over. And then there are the other quiet types that in fact are reaping the profits from this exploitation. There's an interesting contradiction here. Now, <clears throat> the word commitment here is interesting. Here's what the word commitment means. It means what you do with your time and money. Not what you say. I'm committed to this, I'm committed to that. That means very little. You want to know what the United States is committed to? Look at the federal budget. That's what the United States is committed to. The federal budget. You look at the time. What do you do with your time? Everybody here has got 24-7. You do a, uh, an inventory of that, that's who you are. And so Malcolm used the phrase, by any means necessary, which meant at that moment, in that debate, he was prepared, like, you know, sitting in Vegas or something, to put it all on the line. Shove all your chips over there. That's, that's how we're playing this game. By any means necessary. Of course, if you look at Malcolm's actions, versus what was written about Malcolm, what was written about him is you say, oh, he was a thief, a thug, he was shooting and killing people, he was rising up and charging in with guns and M16s, etc., etc. In fact, he did none of that. In fact, what he did was educate, network with people, and speak out about things. Clearly and simply. That's what made him dangerous. Now, the interesting thing about Malcolm X is that he was, in the tradition of Nat Turner, what you would call a field Negro. That is, someone who didn't go to college, who didn't get to a position of authority because he was appealing to white people or people in positions of power. He came the other way. Like many hip-hop artists come the other way. Although it's also interesting how a hip-hop artist might come that way at first and then come over here and represent whatever corporate contract they have to design. Now they didn't get a corporate contract. Now, what did he say specifically to you? I'm going to use these two quotes which uh, come from a speech that he gave the young people who were visiting Harlem, Mississippi. I think what young people, especially nowadays, should learn how to do is see for yourself, listen for yourself, think for yourself. Then you can come to an intelligent decision for yourself. That takes a lot of work. Wouldn't it be easier just to turn on Fox News and find out what to think? Of course it would. That's why a lot of people do it. Or maybe you want to get really compressive and watch CNN. <clears throat> okay? That's what the mainstream discourse would have us believe is the political option that we have. Wouldn't it be interesting if people stormed in the library and read 
as Malcolm is encouraging people to do, and then everybody think for yourself. You know, Bubba thinking for himself. Kwame or Kojo thinking for himself and herself. That's democracy. That's what Malcolm was advocating. It's good to keep wide open ears and listen to what everybody else has to say. But when you come to make a decision, you've got to weigh all of what you have heard on its own and places where it belongs, then come to a decision for yourself. That means you've got to read the newspaper. You've got to watch several programs. Not just this jokeful stuff. I'm talking the internet. You can listen to the news in every country in the world. Malcolm used to have in his core circle reading groups. People had to read the New York Times, The Nation, The Peking Review, religiously. In other words, he had people reading stuff from all over the world. They were intellectuals. They had seminars to debate the questions. Ask yourself in your life, you and your friends, do you have study groups? Now I'm talking about what classes you're taking. I mean study groups to find out what you need to live, to be intelligent, to plan your future. That's what he was advocating for you. Now we have a website. I welcome you to, uh, to come to this website, and you can find out most things you would want to find out about Malcolm X. That's the uh, URL. You see it, uh, www.brothermalcolm.net. You can find what Malcolm said. For example, here is a list of uh, all the documents he made to find, and here is a letter, for example, that he wrote uh, Elijah Muhammad in 1964 and many other documents. There's a bibliography, that's a new word. Bibliography, it's like bibliography. Bibliography, a listing of books. Bibliography, a listing of websites. So here are websites about Malcolm. Everyone should know about family genealogy. Here is a chronology of the male line leading to Malcolm, Earl, Little, Malcolm's father, then his grandfather, great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather. You can also find out what the FBI had in mind. They were forced uh, through the Freedom of Information Act to put uh, make information public. But what I find the FBI site, they don't even know how to spell his name right. You see what I mean? This is the FBI. So it might not matter that they're watching everybody. They don't can't get their spelling together, I guess, or maybe it does. Anyway, there's a lot of stuff at the FBI site. You can see those 4,000 pages. Like, for example, this is what um, a spy's note looks like. As you can see, it is recommended that a security index card 
that's back in the day. You know, the three by five cards, yeah, this is kind of date. Uh, be prepared on the above captioned individual. And so on. This on our site is a very important aspect of our site. These are speeches by Mountain. We have over 25 full speeches on this website. Very important uh, to be aware of the digitization process today and how information is being put on the web that changes the conditions for all of us. Like I said, you have access to the world media. Of course, Mountain didn't. He was reading newspapers, hard copy newspapers. Now, one of the things that we did on the web, I just wanted to mention this, is that uh, Mountain's family had a lot of material in one of those uh, uh, storage, rental storage places, but the daughter had taken material and it was in Florida. And uh, my sister was, uh, we buy Mountain memorabilia and stuff, you know, they're, they're, you can imagine, they're ashtrays, they're dolls, they're, uh, Watches, they're all kinds of stuff. Um, anyway, and on eBay, and there are two eBays. One eBay is the eBay most of us look at, the other eBay is big money. Well, she just happened to be browsing in the big money section, and bam, discovered they were selling Malcolm's archive. So she got on the phone and called me and said, Wait a minute, what is this? I looked, found out, and I edited a listserv. Uh, which is an email uh, exchange of information process. And so I got that information and put it on the listserv and sent it out. The American Library Association has a newsletter. They got it, put it out in their circles, and then the New York Times got it. And so the next day, in other words, the next day it was on the page, front page of the New York Times. And we were able to stop the sale. Because at that point, who knows who would have gotten it, and that would be the end of that. Here's an interesting point. When it comes to real estate in this country, we have a rule of law called eminent domain. I don't know who was living here before Moraine Valley got it, but eminent domain, they could say, they could come and they say, look, Mr. Johnson, Ms. Williams, y'all got to know. Because Moraine Valley is coming here, and we will compensate you X amount of dollars for your property, but you got to go. It's in the public interest. Now, when it comes to intellectual property, we have no such rule of law. Even though these materials are part of our national heritage, as important as a piece of real estate for a community college or a street. And so, what this tells us is we need new federal legislation. So that when a body of material, even though a family has it, that is of importance to the country, that we can figure out a way to save that material, compensate the family for it, but to save it for all the generations to come. Just a little idea for you future lawyers and uh, uh, members of the uh, state legislature and whoever's going to be elected to Congress. Remember. You heard it here first. We need a new piece of legislation regarding intellectual property for uh, uh, saving, really preserving uh, the documents that reflect the history of uh, this country. <coughs> okay, I finally come to the point of your homework. First point is, 
listen to Malcolm's speeches. Reading your biography is important, but listen to his speeches. They'll come alive. It's as if he's sitting there talking to you today. So listen to his speeches. And I've just given you a website where you can find all those speeches. Second, measure your life by the four stages of Malcolm. Following the rules, Malcolm Little. Secondly, breaking the rules, Detroit Red. Third, embracing moral standards around which to lead your life and become an example to your family and to your community. And fourth, winning the respect of people from all cultures and countries because you stand for the kind of politics that they can identify with as well. Third is, everybody that's over 40 or 50, you need to ask them, how does Malcolm X impact your life? Get a discussion going. You will discover that the issues of people remembering in the past are vital today. They'll start talking about them like they're today. It's like touching a nerve. And me, you know, look, I got high in the 60s. I mean, the 60s were fantastic. And then they were over. And I really, I just got to do fun. You know, then, then, I rediscovered revolution because we live in the information revolution. We live in a revolutionary moment and most people don't even know it. <coughs> it's a revolutionary moment. Everything is changing. You see all those computers over there? They work there yesterday. It's new. Librarians don't even know who they are. They're keepers of computers. I know that. Look, I'm, I'm teaching librarians. I know they're more than that, but I'm sorry to say something here. It's new game. You know what they say? New sheriff in town? New game in town. Ask people, how did Malcolm impact them? I'm including white people. I'm not just talking about black people. Because they'll remember. Malcolm came out of prison. You can never forget that everybody in prison isn't a hopeless case. Everybody that's fortunate ought to be dealt with somebody that's unfortunate. That's the only way that a sane society can exist, helping the less fortunate. Of course, the last point is obvious, isn't it? You've been listening to me. I don't want you to believe anything I said. I want you to check everything out. I want you to think for yourself. And you might find out I said something worth hearing. And then if you find out I was wrong on a point, I want you to find me. Search me out. Send me an email. Uh, excuse me, uh, Professor O'Connor, not but uh, you said this, and uh, I checked that, and uh, perhaps you should change what you're saying. Get in the dialogue. There are black people who would never suspect there are white students in the suburbs who are moral and creative in their thinking and want change in the society. This is a moment for you to help save all of us. And that's a big order, isn't it? But that's the way we thought in the 60s. We thought bigger than ourselves. We had big ideas. Nobody accepted the fact that they were irrelevant and small and had nothing to say that was worth anything. This is what you can learn from Malcolm X. Not the, uh, the U.S. Army ad or the poetry of Justin Jackson, but you can be somebody. 
because Malcolm X became somebody. And many other people represent that same kind of vision of the future. So if I said anything worth your day, it's that sort of thing for yourself and learn from Malcolm in that regard. Then I think society is a better place to live. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.